This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We've got to get to the virus and vaccine news. We have U.S. vaccine supply should increase enough by April to allow anyone who wants a shot to begin getting one. This is according to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, This, even as vaccines are distributed to the oldest Americans, their share of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. has not abated. Demand is high also as the U.S. begins rolling out vaccines at pharmacies. So we're seeing the rollout happen. Uh, As for global cases, 107.5 million deaths passing 2.3 million and more than 152 million COVID shots have been given worldwide. Great to have back with us Dr. Eric Toner. He's a senior scholar with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a senior scientist in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Toner with us once again on the phone from Baltimore. Dr. Toner, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. Um, so talk to me. Uh, I feel pretty upbeat by hearing uh, what Dr. Fauci says in terms of folks getting access to the vaccine here in the U.S. Do you think that's a, a realistic goal? I do think that it's um, probably a fairly realistic goal. I mean, we're doing really quite well, despite uh, the frustrations that so many people uh, are feeling with regards to the their personal access to the vaccine, we are doing quite well nationally in, in terms of the number of people being vaccinated. So I, I do think that there's a pretty reasonable chance that most people will have access to the vaccine sometime in the spring. I, I don't know for sure if it's going to be April, but sometime in the spring, I think is reasonable. So what? sometimes in the spring, what does that mean for reaching, I don't like to use the term herd immunity, but 75% of the population vaccinated? If people have access to it, it's not necessarily the same thing as them actually getting the vaccine and us being on the other side of this pandemic. Sure. Well, the real question is how much, how much more vaccine can be delivered um, and administered. We are finding that we can administer more vaccine than is being produced. Right now, we're producing about 10 million uh, doses per week, which is enough to vaccinate about a million and a half people per day. But we need to get to about three million people per day if we want to hit the target of uh, getting 75 percent of the, the population vaccinated by sometime over the summer. I think it's I think it's realistic. Um, we are getting we should be getting more vaccine from both Moderna and Pfizer this month. Uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine looks like it'll get um, emergency use authorization this month Mm -hmm. Um, and so we'll have more vaccine and I think that it's reasonable that we'll get to three million doses a day and that should get us to uh, where we want to be this summer. That's great. Yeah does that happen with uh, Pfizer and BioNTech and uh, Moderna or does that take a different type of vaccine the introduction of uh, one of the newer vaccines that haven't yet been approved? yeah, it is. It assume, that assumes that the Johnson Johnson vaccine comes online as anticipated, which it looks like it will. 
Yeah, exactly. Hey, the one conversation, Dr. Toner, that I have a lot at home is understanding, you know, variants and how that plays into it. It's certainly something that is now in the headlines a lot, understandably right. so. If this schedule that Dr. Fauci and you you agree with in terms of rolling out the vaccine, is it fast enough enough to stay ahead of the variant so that we can ultimately get ahead of COVID? The bottom line is we don't know for sure. Okay. We are in a horse race uh, between the, the vaccine and the variants. If if we are, we don't yet know how rapidly the variants will become a, the predominant strain. It does look like that'll happen. The the UK variant looks like it'll become the dominant strain probably sometime this spring. If we get enough people vaccinated by that time, it shouldn't be an overwhelming problem. If if not, then we could see another surge. And so how quickly then can we pivot to take the existing vaccines and adapt them? Is that a pretty quick and easy process, says the layperson uh, and journalist? <laughs> yes. Uh, it depends on your point of view. Yeah. If your point of view is a manufacturer of the vaccine, it's no problem at all. Um, you know, for the rest of us, it, it, it does take a while. Uh, and there has to be some testing after after the vaccine's been tweaked. It's been tweaked, but it's important to realize the existing vaccines work against the variants. They just don't work quite as well as they do against the classic strain. So it's not that they're not effective against the variants. It's just they're not quite as effective. So they well, still work. Mm-hmm. Okay. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is is expectations. And and it, let's say that a family had family members who were in their 60s and they were scheduled to get vaccinated um does that you know in the in the coming weeks does that mean that this those those people who are in their 60s who have been vaccinated does that mean that they can all get together with other people now i i think there's a lot of confusion around like what it means for some people to be yeah. vaccinated in society and what it means for for other people not to be vaccinated and and to what that means for return for normalcy sure it's a really good question and one that I get a lot too. So first thing, let me say, uh, everybody, when you after you get your second shot, you're not immune for another two weeks. So you, you can't go out and party right after your first, your second shot. Um, the other the other thing that we should say is, it's still important to wear your mask and maintain distance, even if you've been vaccinated, because the vaccine is not only to protect you personally; it's to keep you from um, spreading uh, the virus and it doesn't do the vaccine doesn't prevent spread of the virus as much as it gets you personal protection so you still need to wear a mask you still need to maintain distance to protect other people because you can still transmit the virus even though you've been vaccinated so that's interesting so wait okay and these vaccines are developing like we've had a a big conversation about this this week about developing anti- antibodies versus developing T-cells. T-cells obviously stay with you longer. I mean, these are also Mm -hmm. going to be significant, right, in terms of what our trajectory is going forward. Yeah, so we know a whole lot more about the antibodies than we do about the T-cell response to these these vaccines or or to uh, actual infection. So it's a much harder thing to study. Yeah. So um, we just don't know yet. So here we are in February, almost a year into this pandemic, and we're starting to see signs that 
governments, especially here in New York City, want to get back to normal or at least return to some mm-hmm. s- semblance of normalcy. I guess I have a hard time understanding what you still what you can and can't do after you've been vaccinated, because the governor wants to open up um, sporting, you know, comp, sport, sporting complex, sporting arenas and, and have people who have been vaccinated and go right. and wear masks. Like, is that type of thing? OK, and we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh, the short answer is I don't think that's a good idea. I think we should still be cautious. I think that some uh, gradual reopening makes sense, but it should be done carefully. Um, I think a sudden reopening may cause another surge, and we really want to avoid that. Dr. Toner, I want to talk schools because we learned earlier today that the U.S. CDC will release a detailed guidance tomorrow on how to safely reopen more schools. This has been long awaited. The Biden administration has a goal to get schools open in the coming months. What's the right way to do this? Well, the important thing to do is to, is to make sure that um, we follow the evidence. And so that means that we need to make sure the kids are um, masked, that the, there's adequate ventilation, that there's adequate uh, reduction of density in the school that is uh, allowing enough space between kids, both in the classroom and elsewhere in the school. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that schools can be opened safely. There have been schools that have been opened throughout the pandemic uh, and have done so safely, but it, it requires a lot of mitigation efforts. And I assume that's what the CDC is going to uh, outline tomorrow. Um, this has been done in private schools successfully, whether it can be done in a large public school system, um, and, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's tricky. and uh, But I know that there's so much pressure um, to get kids back. Tell me, I'm curious, Dr. Toner, what are you hearing? What are you seeing maybe from colleagues or from what you're seeing directly when it comes to hospitals and the type of virus cases uh, that we're seeing and their access to necessary supplies to treat patients? Well, it's a whole lot better now than it was uh, months or two months ago. Uh, we were in a, a terrific crisis uh, following the holidays in the early weeks of January, uh, pretty much across the country, but especially in Southern California, where they were literally running out of oxygen. Um, with that was also seen in other places like Minnesota, like Texas. It had been seen previously in New York City in the spring. Um, generally speaking, supplies, uh, both equipment and and disposable supplies are the situation is a whole lot better than it than it had been in the past um but part of it is because case counts are down so much from where they were i mean we are we are at half the level we were um a month or six weeks ago yeah Uh, so um you know a lot of the stress has been taken off and um hopefully fingers crossed the downward trend will continue if, however, we see another big surge, we could be back into a, a situation where, where we have shortages. So I, I want to contextualize this downward trend because it is great news that we are seeing it move down, but we're still seeing the number of cases that it, per day in the United States that rivals, you know, anything that we saw over the, over the midsummer and, and, and spring last year. So it's still, it's still very, very high. That said, 
Doctor, is it going down because of the vaccine? Is it going down because the post-holiday bump is, is we're, we're moving away from that? Is it a combination of the two? Is it too early for the vaccine? Why are we seeing this decline now? And wh- how could we see it spike up again soon? Well, I think it's multifactorial. Um, it it's probably doesn't have much to do with the vaccine. There hasn't been enough time for, the, hmm. for enough people to be vaccinated to make a big difference. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, individual behavior. I, I think after the huge spike everywhere across the country um, in the end of December, early January, you know, we, we saw that many more people were in masks, maintaining distances. Many um, cities and towns um, went back into some, some degree of lockdown and tightened up their, you know, their restrictions. Right. So I, it's, I think we're seeing evidence of that. Um, and I think the bottom line is trends should continue to go down as long as people um, you know, maintain these mitigation efforts. If they don't, then I, I think we will see the you know, that curve turn around a bit. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. And I like when the curve goes down. Dr. Eric Toner, thank you so much, as always. Senior scholar at uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course. Michael R. Bloomberg is a founder, of course, of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and supports the Bloomberg School of Public Health. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So I want to get to a story that's among our most read on the Bloomberg. It's about the individual transforming the fortune created by billionaire and founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. And we're not talking about Jeff. No, we're not even talking about a a Bezos anymore. We're (laughs) talking about Mackenzie Scott. That's right. His former wife. Uh, Let's get into it with Bloomberg News Wealth Team reporter Sophie Alexander. She's on the phone in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Man, she has been a game changer, Jill, when it comes to philanthropy and giving. Yeah, and we're going to talk about her. We also have to talk about Jeff Bezos because, you know, the two of them together... Um, you know, when they were a couple still, uh, not so long ago, they had a, a massive fortune together. And yeah. actually what was pretty amazing about it was actually how little of it ended up in um, uh, philanthropic causes during during their marriage. But what we've seen since their divorce, and really um, uh, most recently, um, largely because of McKinsey, has been um, this real uh, uh, change. And, you know, the six billion figure that uh, Sophie uh, and, and Ben write about um, that's attributed to her, we think is the largest single uh, single uh, amount that anyone's ever given to uh, philanthropies in a, in a, in a calendar year. Um, and, and so Sophie, like, can you walk us through, uh, you know, the, the significance of what that means for the Amazon fortune going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the $6 billion is just such an, an immense figure. And when we're talking about philanthropy historically, you know, one of the main uh, criticisms of billionaire philanthropists, of, or one of their reasons, rather, of not giving away enough money faster is that, you know, it takes time to be thoughtful and it takes time to give away this, these huge amounts of money, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, but Mackenzie's sort of disproving that, and what this could mean for the future is, you know, Mackenzie's only just getting started. She's finally giving pledge. She's pledged to give away the majority of her fortune, um, which at this point is nearing $60 billion. 
And so um, that, that's just a huge amount of money that could be uh, given away. And then when we're talking about Jeff, who recently stepped down or announced that he would be stepping down from Amazon as CEO, um, that's sort of a sign that he's probably going to focus more on his giving and that we could be seeing more from him in the philanthropic space coming forward. And to be fair, I mean, he did give away money before, right? But it's not as quickly as his former wife has. Definitely. Um, I think that, the to be fair to Jeff, um, when we talk about Bill Gates, you know, one of the most uh, impressive philanthropists in history, he didn't start giving away very much until he stepped down from Microsoft. Um, and so Jeff has been giving money, but, you know, when you put it in the context of how much wealth he really has, it's, it's a very small amount. We're talking about uh, single-digit millions, um, tens of millions sometimes, and more recently, sure, hundreds of millions of dollars. But where he's really uh, had the biggest figures are in his commitment. You know, he's made the $2 billion commitment for uh, the Day One Fund and then the $10 billion commitment for the Earth Fund. So those are huge numbers, but we're not actually seeing that money deployed yet. So you made the point earlier on, on Quick Take today, Sophie, that Bill Gates didn't start giving significantly until he left Microsoft as CEO, which I, which I thought was a, a really important point and not something that I had considered. Um, I, I wonder if that's what we're going to start seeing from Jeff Bezos now that he has stepped down or he said he would step down and that will happen later this year and, and hand off the reins to, to somebody else at Amazon. Are we going to start seeing Jeff Bezos give away more money? That is sort of the big question. You know, in his letter announcing that he would be stepping down, he mentioned the Day One Fund and he mentioned the Earth Fund as two of the things that he plans to focus on more. So, you know, it's been a, a few years now since he made those announcements that he start, would start the Day One Fund and he announced the Earth Fund last year, but really has only given about a billion dollars of the $12 billion that he's committed to giving. And he's set no timeline for himself. So, you know, he's not really going to be held to anything, um, but we could see more from him coming soon. Well, I think, you know, that's, it's an interesting point here because, you know, even just yesterday, there, the Chronicle of Philanthropy came out with some big numbers from, from uh, Bezos and, and Scott and others. And, and one of the things that is interesting there is that, you know, Bezos's name was actually at the top of that list because of what he's pledged, but not actually what he's given. And that, I think, is the, one of the things that is really important to keep in mind and what, what Sophie and Ben did a great job of underscoring in this. It's like one thing to pledge, and it's another thing to actually do. And what she you know, really showed here is, is uh, that you can do something big and dramatic and do it actually fast. And that, that I think, is the thing that um, everyone in the philanthropy world has looked at her and said, wow, this is something. So Sophie, my, my, uh, my last question for you is, how competitive does it get when your ex-wife is giving away six billion? <laughs> like, do you, is that something you have to kind of like, does it sort of kindle a fire in your belly to be like, I, I gotta come through um, Did you quick. really do that, Joel? Like Joel. Yeah. I, you know, wow. it just, it happens. It happens. It's <laughs> like you can hear an echo in here. Oh. <laughs> That's a real laugh from Joel, I like All it. All right, you, you guys just be quiet. Go ahead, Sophie, answer. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, it's impossible to say what the relationship is now and how her giving impacts his giving. You know, she's signed the giving pledge, she hasn't, and he's been sort of knocked for that. Um, 
but and it's also impossible to say what their philanthropic uh, giving, you know, who did what while they were together was. I talked to an expert about that. She said it's really hard to say. You know, it varies from couple to couple. Um, so we just don't really know enough about their individual personalities to be able to say much more on yeah. that. But you've got to think that, you know, when people are talking about the Amazon fortune and seeing these things that, you know, you, you might feel a certain responsibility yeah. to sort of step it up. It's got to be a prime topic that comes up oh, between the two of them. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're a great team. I'm just going to say it. All right. Got to run, guys. Sophie Alexander, thank you so much. Wealth team reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from San Francisco. Check her out on Twitter. Check out that story uh, on uh, Bloomberg.com. Jill Weber, thank you. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, um, Tim, we talked about the impeachment proceedings before the break. More news out of D.C., because let's not forget, we've got President Biden and Democrats. They're working to get, you know, his COVID-19 relief plan through Congress. And as Bloomberg Business Week national correspondent Josh Green reports, it's really an interesting time for Democrats in the party as two Republican factions are wrestling for control of the GOP. That split is making it an interesting era. Let's get into this with uh, Josh Green, wrote the story. He's on the phone in Washington, D.C. Josh, also the author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. Josh, so tell us about your story and what you were looking into. Well, I was really looking at uh, the Republican Party's uh, inability or unwillingness to move beyond Trump and what it's costing them in the Biden era. Um, There was a lot, I think after the insurrection, there was a lot of um, talk to the effect that Republicans were aghast, willing to break. And if you've watched the trial over the last couple of days in the Senate, it's been clear that, that by and large, Republicans are sticking with Trump. Uh, what I did in my column, though, was look at the policy effects that that's going to have. And I think the most interesting uh, effect that I've come across is the size of the COVID relief bill, which Biden introduced at $1.9 trillion. Um, Goldman Sachs has been tracking its estimates for what the final size of the bill was going to be a month ago. Their estimate was $750 billion because the expectation was that Republicans would negotiate and whittle that down. Um, on Monday, they came out with a new note saying, now we think it's going to be $1.5 trillion, twice the size earlier, basically because Republicans, instead of trying to negotiate and whittle down the price tag, have been busy uh, defending Trump and, and haven't really been willing to engage and try and exert their influence on policy. And I think that's a big trend that a lot of people have been missing early in the Biden era. So, Josh, you, you mentioned the presidencies of Barack Obama and, and Bill Clinton, and you write that navigating such a middle course consumed uh, them and often ended in frustration and defeat. How does Biden free himself from navigating this middle course? What is the opportunity that he has in a time when it does seem like America is even more divided than it was then? We know the last two Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, have both both made concerted efforts to kind of reach out and uh, appeal to a group of center right Republicans in the Senate because there there was great uh, premium put, I think, on, on, on legislation being bipartisan. I think one effect of the Republican Party's uh decision to, to sort of uh, defend Trump and, and kind of remain that MAGA party is that there really isn't that kind of block of centrist Republicans for Biden to try and negotiate with. And as a result, uh, Biden and Democrats haven't really, therefore, had any need to trim their sails and to shrink the size of these packages. So, you know, absent Republican negotiating partners, what Biden's done instead 
is turn to the left and say, okay, if this is my legislative path to getting 50 votes, then I'll do what the folks on my left want, not on the folks on my right. And I think that's why we've seen the doubling of the size of this COVID package in the Goldman Sachs estimate, because it's going to reflect what the left wants, not what the center right might have wanted. Well, that's kind of interesting. So when we think about policy to come, should we look way left? I don't, you know, I, in, in general terms, I think, yes, that, okay. that it's become pretty clear early on that Biden's legislative path is going to be to unify Democrats. I think it's easier to do on something like COVID relief, which is broadly popular, more so than maybe a Green New Deal or expanding the Supreme Court. Um, but, but certainly, I think what this is showing us is that we need to reframe our expectations for what sorts of policies are going to be possible under Biden. Uh, and what he might be able to do with people on his left if Republicans decide that they don't want to try and exert influence over his policies. So, Josh, what, where is the Republican Party right now? Because it is, it, I'm getting a couple different signals here, right? In the one sense, we are seeing widespread support for, for President Trump play out in the Senate trial right now. There's no indication that, that he would be convicted because there, he will not get, you know, the Democrats will not get Republican support for conviction. But at the same time, you write in your story that a majority of U.S. voters would like to see Trump convicted and barred from running for office again. So there's disconnect between what the American people want and, and what Republicans in Congress are, are doing, which is nothing new, I, think, I should say. Yeah, exactly. No, I think I think that's exactly right. And there's a HuffPost YouGov poll that came out this week that showed that about uh, three in four Republican voters wanted the, the party to continue to follow Trump. And I think that's one, that that's the major reason why you see a lot of Republicans like Lindsey Graham who were vocally critical of Trump after the insurrection have completely turned around and now are defending him and attacking Democrats. But if you pull back and look at the broader universe of U.S. voters, uh, they are still very unhappy with Trump, more so after the insurrection. And a slim majority of voters in most polls that I've seen this week uh, want Trump convicted and barred from running for office again. So I think what, the, what, what we can really take away is that the Republican Party so far uh, has not been willing to move beyond Trump. Um, and what I try and do in this piece is illustrate the policy cost uh, of them not wanting to move forward. What, it, what it's done is give Democrats more room to move their bills to the left. Mm. All right, good. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate it. Josh Green, national correspondent, Bloomberg Business Week, joining us uh, from Washington, D.C. Uh, you can, of course, read Josh's story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. So check it out. And also check out his book, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the Nationalist Uprising. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks. Yeah, 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Philip Palumbo is with us, back with us, CEO, CIO, and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. They're a boutique wealth management firm, roughly $300 million in assets under management. And he joins us once again on the phone in Great Neck, Long Island. Hi, Phil. How are you? 
Good, Kara. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, doing okay. Uh, you know, trying to make Good. sense out of a market that continues to he- hit records. Bitcoin hits records. There's a lot of asset classes. Yeah. Uh, and yet we've got millions out of work. We've got an economy that's still struggling. Uh, there's still a lot of questions out there. We've got a lot of people who still are, you know, we're dealing with COVID still. Um, how do you see it? Yeah, so last time I was on the show, November 11th, I had said I was bullish on, on the economy recovery, yeah. only because of the vaccines and breakthroughs of that, et cetera. So I kind of still feel the same way. My only concern is that I do feel, like you said, things are stretched at this point. So I do see volatility over the next month or two, which I do think would be healthy to get a little bit of a pullback here. Uh, but ultimately, it's tough for the market to pull back a lot just because of the backstop with the, the monetary and the fiscal policy and all the money that's going to be coming to people and then in the back end of this year with the reopening of economies it's going to be it's tough to go against and, and bet against the market continue uh, to go that much lower from where we are right now all right let's talk some of the the companies that you're you're following closely starting with disney a company reporting earnings after the bell today uh disney plus obviously has seen huge growth i mean it is what has powered disney to right. record highs but my, my question is 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 how long are investors going to have the patience for disney plus making up for or optimism around disney plus making up for losses at theme parks and movies uh movie theaters uh mm-hmm. and of course uh, the cruises as well well you well, on the back half of this year, with the vaccine breakthroughs, I mean, it's, you're going to see an improvement in the theme parks. You're going to see parks that are closed reopen. You're going to see parks that are open, capacities increase, right? So you're going to see an improvement in the revenues overall for the theme parks going into third, fourth quarter of this year and first quarter of next year and all of 22. So there's definitely going to be improvement versus the opposite there, number one. Number two, the Disney Plus is tremendous, and the opportunity is tremendous. When, when we look at it and we think about it, right, over, over a 13-month period, Right. They, they brought on 90 million subscribers. And if you think about the forecast for 23 and 24, we're talking 230 to 260 million forecasted subscribers. If you extrapolate the revenue generated from that and the bottom line to Disney, it's, it's not about what they're going to print this quarter or next quarter or the quarter after. It's really about where they're going to be three to five years. They're going to be a different company, not just a company that's all about the parks. Yeah. Talk about a big pivot. <laughs> <laughs> and really quick, a, a right? quick one too. Yeah, I mean, new CEO, right. new thinking. I mean, I do feel like there's, and maybe that's the pandemic that you know things that maybe a company's been thinking about. All of a sudden, they're like, we don't right. got time to do focus groups and figure out the best way to slowly make this move. We've just got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of luck in there as well, right? I mean, it was before it was before COVID, but COVID definitely accelerated there. I think they're, uh, they're excellent in that particular area, but it's been remarkable. It really has. Everybody agrees to that. I do think, however, I mean, it's a little stretched here from a valuation standpoint, so I wouldn't be surprised. A little? It's 163 of a, P, a PE of 163, a forward-looking PE of 122. How stretched is it? Yeah, so it's stretched. So if you look at volatility in, market, in, uh, in the options market, I wouldn't be surprised that after the print, after the bell today, that we see some sort of pullback and, and they start to trade flat for a, for a month or two. But then ultimately, I do think that the next leg is going to be higher. Yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's a forward-looking story at this. I mean, if you it think is. about how much it was beaten up, but it's been on quite a bounce back since those uh, lows in October. Hey, speaking of a forward-looking yeah. story, I know that you recently added Jets, the airline ETF, to uh, your mm-hmm. portfolio. How are you thinking about airlines weathering this storm? Yeah, so, so we're, in, in our view, we're in a growth-accelerating story with the economy. We troughed it last year. We're now recovering. And anytime you go through a recovery, small caps lead and cyclicals lead. And part of the cyclical story is Disney and also 
uh, the airlines, which, like I said, we just took a position a couple weeks ago. So, again, it's the same story that we've all been hearing on the back half of this year going into 22. Airlines, what we believe, you know, will make a comeback. It's part of the cyclical story, and that's why we're in that. Yeah, I mean, so if I look at the you know the Jets ETF like right now, I mean it's at twenty three and change. How much higher does it go in your view? I think I think you know twenty five is in the cards, twenty six for sure. You know, I think the I think it's going to slowly move that way. I don't think you get a a quick increase to the upside. I would say you know third quarter, fourth quarter of this year, I think you could see it start moving to that twenty four, twenty five price target, which we're looking for. This is this for us is more of. It's not a long-term investment for us. It's yeah. probably more of a trade-off of the cyclical recovery. Talk to us about DocuSign. I've actually had to use it uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, so have I, I. Right? I mean, and it ha- was on a tear last year. It was up 200%, and it's continuing mm-hmm. to climb higher here, up about 15%, 16% here. Um, what you're thinking about it, it's now 256 257 uh, Where does it go? Yeah, again, Kara, everything is expensive here, as you just said before. Yeah. So I'm not denying that. But one thing I will say that DocuSign is a fine company. The economic moat is very wide. Uh, there are not many that, that do it as well as DocuSign has done. It, I mean, COVID accelerated all, a lot of their growth, like many other companies. But for sure, this is here to stay for a very long time. Customers got used to and, and consumers got used to using DocuSign for all different industries. So, so that's why we believe longer term DocuSign is, is here to stay. Yeah, the revenue growth numbers year over year have been pretty dramatic for the last few years. Yeah, and it makes sense. You're not going to go back to signing paper documents once you've used a product like this. I mean, it's like so this. easy to use. Yeah. Right, exactly. It really is simple for the consumer to use. So uh, we think that's a, a great story longer term. Phil, very briefly, um, anything that you've moved away from in, in recent months you've gotten out of? Um, you know, the only thing we've done, we've been doing is, you know, the investments that are trading 20 to 50 times sales, which that is, in our opinion, way overvalued. So we're reducing some of our growth, moving it towards the value. Historically, the strategy has always been to blend growth and value evenly. So growth has outperformed value now for, for some time, obviously. So now we're looking to reduce some of the risk from growth, move it into value, as we think, as interest rates, we believe, move higher over the next two, three, four years we think value has a chance of, of doing better than growth. So we want to keep it. I have heard that for a long time. <laughs> uh, me too. And there's been a lot of head fakes, right? But, but I think, uh, I think this, um, I'm hoping this time around it's, it's going to be for real because there's some value in that area. Yeah, it does feel like, and I'm not a market predictor, but it does feel like, right. you know, that there's some fluff in the market and that at some point we'll see somewhat of a, a correction or maybe a little bit of a pullback, as we've often done, and then the market just heads higher. Um, Phil, thank you so much. Right. Have a great weekend. Phil Palumbo, founder, CEO, and Chief Investment Officer at Palumbo Wealth Management, roughly $300 million in assets under management, on the phone from Great Neck, New York. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.